Welcome to the 374th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with horror and dark fantasy author Tim Levin, author of more than 30 novels. And Tim's latest book is a memoir titled Run, Walk, Crawl, Getting Fit in My 40s. Stay tuned for my interview with Tim Levin. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Tim Levin. Levin is a horror and dark fantasy writer who has written and published more than 30 novels, including several media tie-in novels, including the novelization of the movie Kong Skull Island. The 2019 Netflix movie The Silence was based on Levin's novel of the same name. But Levin's latest book is a departure from his usual novels. He's written a memoir titled Run, Walk, Crawl, Getting Fit in My 40s. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. Thanks. Cool. Well, you've written many novels, but as I mentioned, your latest book, Run, Walk, Crawl, is a memoir. Was there a specific moment that you set off on your fitness journey in your 40s? Yeah, a very specific moment, actually. It was um, so New Year's Day when I was 41, actually. Uh, it It was one of those New Year's Days where the previous night you've drunk too much and eaten too much and made a New Year's resolution to not eat and drink for a month or so. Um, so obviously midday, we walked up the local pub with a bunch of friends <laughs> and had a few beers and a burger. Um, and I found it really hard, actually. I found it, I found even walking to the pub quite tough and, and I was overweight and unfit. Um, and I, I, could, I remember staring into my half-empty glass, fifth half-empty glass probably at the time, and and just thinking to myself, oh, it's, it's too late now, really. I was 40 you know, 41 years old. And I was thinking I've let it go too far now. I'm not, never going to turn this around. And then um wasn't actually that day where I sort of started a fitness journey. It was a few, maybe a couple of weeks later, I bumped into an old friend who'd always been um sort of a bit overweight and bubbly and, you know, jokey. And he was just slim and trim and I hadn't seen him for a while. And I, I said to him, what happened to you? And he said, I got fit. 
And just those three words, I thought, oh, wow, maybe maybe I can do that. Um, and, you know, it was, it's it's a long, a long, hard trawl through my fifth decade, but it's that's the moment I sort of thought to myself, I really do need to do something now. It's now or never. And that, that's that's the sort of pivotal point there, really. And and so what did you do from there? I mean, because, well, you know, you're, you, you just said that you were kind of overweight and struggling to walk to the pub. So where did you yeah. go from there? Well, the, the, the same evening I met that friend, my friend Pete, uh, I, I said to him, you look great. You know, what have you done? And he said, I just started running and, and um, training more. And I said to him, I've always thought it would take for me to actually get fit. It would take a challenge beyond what I think I can do. So I said we should do the National Three Peaks. And in the UK, that's a, the Three Peaks Challenge is you climb the highest mountains in England, Wales, and Scotland uh, all in one day, including traveling between them. And it's over, it's over 10,000 feet of climbing. Um, it's not technical mountain climbing, but it's good, solid hiking and some scrambling. Uh, sure. 10,000 feet and like 21 miles, including driving four or 500 miles. So massive undertaking for somebody who at the time – you know, I, like I said, I could barely walk out the pub, but, um, but Pete and I committed to do that with three friends and, uh, probably four months later we did it and, um, you know, I did it and, and succeeded. And those four months were a sort of total change around really lots of hill walking day and night. Uh, I started running cause I needed to drop some weight. Um, I just totally got the bug. I mean, I loved it. I loved the the sense of the the fun of training with friends to do something like that is great fun anyway. And the sense of achievement when you've done it exhausted and knackered and aching and bumped and bruised. And, and I almost, you know, I, if you read the book, you'll, you'll read where I actually almost died on one of the mountains. Cause I, my, my mountain sort of knowledge was very limited and I, I, I did something stupid on the last mountain, but um, yeah, but it was just a sense of achievement really. And, 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 I think some people would do that and then stop, but I, I did it and carried on and went a bit extreme from there on, really. And so where did you go from there to your first triathlon? Um, well, as I say, I, st- I started running uh, to try and get fit for the three peaks, and I really fell in love with the running. So I did a, uh, the year after, I did my first couple of marathons and worked my way up to those distances. Um, but at the time, I was also um, toying with the idea of triathlon because I I quite liked cycling uh, at the time, but I never did anything serious. Uh, so I bought bought my first road bike. Um, I sold a few limited edition books in my collection. Uh, <laughs> went in went in my local bike shop with a, with a literally a handful of cash and said, "I need a bike." So they sold me. You know, they took all the cash out of my hands, gave me a bike and a helmet and some shoes, and that was it. Um, I couldn't swim at the time. I well, I, I could I could sort of barely swim. I could do breaststroke for a couple of lengths. Uh, but I had to learn how to swim front crawl to um, to do my first triathlon, and that, I think my first triathlon was um, I think it was the year I did my first marathons, or possibly the year after. My memory's hazy. Um, uh, and then again with that, I went a bit extreme. I didn't just stick to short distance marathon uh, triathlons. I, I I did my first one, and then thought, well, I've got to do an Ironman now because again, it was something I was I was fitter and, and a bit leaner and. Um, enjoying, in, enjoying the training, enjoying what it took to get there. But I thought to myself, I've got to commit to something that I don't think I can do. 
and an iron man is is just mind-boggling for someone that, that really hasn't got much of a level of fitness so i signed up for my first iron man uh, the year and, the year and for those listening who aren't familiar with the iron man can you go over the just the distances yeah sure so it's an extreme triathlon so <clears throat> excuse me so the, the swims 2.4 miles open water and then uh, it's a 112 mile bike ride and then a marathon to finish off and you get 17 hours to to finish it and what was what was your first experience of a of an Ironman triathlon? Oh, it was life. It was literally life changing. Um, the the training to get there was tough. Uh, I followed training plans. I joined the triathlon club to get, um, which is definitely one of the best things I've ever done. You get so much advice and help from people around you who've who've done these things. Um, and you also you get their stories and you get to, you get to believe that you can do it as well. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of the training for an Ironman and actually doing it is 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 mental. It's it's all in the head. Um, there's a saying that ultra runners use. Um, ultra runners, you know, people who run a hundred miles are even a bit beyond Ironman, really. But they say uh, an ultra marathon's ninety um, percent mental, and the, the other ten percent's in your head. And Ironman's pretty much like that to an extent. Um, so I joined. I joined the club and trained hard and got lots of advice and help and ended up um yeah doing doing my first Ironman and, and crossing the line was you, you know you, you you get that actual experience where the, the announcer says and here's tim tim you are an iron man and those words i'd heard in my in my imagination and, and it is just it, it, life-changing to cross the line and and realize that you know and and now i i i talk to people about it and i I say to people, virtually anyone could do an Ironman, really. Virtually anyone could could get to the level to do an Ironman. It's just uh, commitment and dedication together. And so when you were doing your first Ironman, can you remember a specific moment that you had to fight through that desire to just give up? Oh, training-wise, yeah, definitely. There were, there were lots of moments training when um, when I thought, I'm, I'm really not sure I can do this. Um uh, I had a knee injury while I was training, so I, I didn't actually do any more than about seventy-five miles in my training rides. And usually, you you do a you do it like a hundred-mile ride at least in your training sessions for an Ironman. Um, sure, sort of six to nine months training, you know. So I had so I had that problem, and also, um, yeah, the the just the dark moments. Sometimes, literally, if you're running in, you know, I run in the night sometimes or evenings with a head torch, just to fit around family and work. Uh, Lots of moments where I thought, what, you know, what the hell am I actually doing? Am I going to damage myself? And is this something that I'm not going to, I'm going to fail at and it's going to really, you know, rebound on me. Uh, but there was a, there's, I, I came across a saying while I was training. I'm not quite sure where I read it. I think it was, I read lots of books about Ironman and, tri- and our triathlons. And the saying is, um, uh, if you think you can do something or you think you can't, you're probably right. And that, that's all about positive mindset and positive energy as well um so there were dark moments and but on the race honestly i can remember i mean this was um seven or eight years ago now my first one i've done a few more since but the first one sticks in your mind and i can remember getting in the lake and the the gun fired and i started swimming and even though i was swimming i had a smile on my face because i thought i'm doing it i'm racing an iron man and from that moment on i never I didn't consider that I wouldn't finish. I knew it was going to be really hard and it really, really right. was, you know, tough. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, I've, I've done, haven't done enough training, but then I always think that every race I do, I think I've not, I'm not trained properly for this. Um, 
but uh, it was the, the self belief and and the you know I, there wasn't there wasn't really a moment during the race where I thought I'm going to stop. That's great. Um, did you see? Did you notice any impact on your fiction writing as you were going undergoing this kind of physical transformation in your forties? Um, I, I've so a few times I've incorporated it into my writing. You know, there's that old adage: write about what you know. Um, and I used to think, well, I you know I don't know about the apocalypse, although you know we've, we've all had a bit of a taste of it this year but sure. um but um yeah so I've, I've written a couple of or two or three novels now that sort of incorporate the whole endurance sport idea i wrote a thriller called the hunt um which really was was me it was a bit it was you know the main character was me being chased around snowdonia in north wales but getting shot at uh, <laughs> which has never happened but um so i wrote that and I, then i've uh, my latest novel actually last year uh, called Eden is a is about uh, adventure races, which is sort of similar to endurance racing, you know, um, ultra running. Sure. Um, so yeah, so I, I have incorporated it as well, and probably in smaller smaller places that I'm not even conscious of. I think my characters, some of my characters, tend to be runners now, and <laughs> just because you know you you can sort of identify with them a little bit more. Sure. Well, if, if someone hasn't heard about your novel, Eden, that you just mentioned, how would you describe that novel? Uh, my publisher described it really well. It's a, a eco-horror thriller. Um, so Eden's sort of very near future, really. And it's it's set at a time when the climate crisis has passed the tipping point and, and Earth's in decline. And there. But humanity rises to the occasion and we come together countries and nations come together and create uh, a dozen massive areas on the planet that we call virgin zones and we give them back to nature. Uh, so we withdraw all humanity from these places. They're not just, they're not national parks, but they're, and they're not even science experiments. They're new abandoned areas where nature can take hold again. And the intention is that they become uh, the lungs of the world and nature renews itself there. But, um, there are also people who like the challenge, I guess people like me in a way, which is which is terrible, but like the challenge of these places. So there, there are teams of adventure racers that want to be the first to race across these areas, and Eden is the oldest and the largest. Um, but when they get in there, they find that nature has reestablished itself in, in, in remarkable ways, and, and people are no longer welcome in these places. And then stuff goes down, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what was your writing journey, your original writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first short stories and novels published? Um, well, my I, yeah, I've been writing since I could hold a pencil, really. I mean, I, I always enjoyed writing stories in my, you know, when I was single digits, really. And through my teens, I started God knows how many novels that I didn't finish. Lots of them were sort of rip-offs of, of favorite writers at the time, which, you know, younger writers tend to do. They, they try and mimic their favorite writers. So for a time, it was um, I was writing sort of Cold War thrillers and things like that. Um, I was reading Colin Forbes, uh, Alistair MacLean, and people like that, and, and writing novels similar to them. And then, um, and then I got into Stephen King and uh, James Herbert and Clive Barker. So I started really seriously writing short stories, uh, I think I was 21 when I had my first, when I wrote my first short story. 
And I was about 24 when I had my first one accepted by a little magazine called Peeping Tom in the UK, which is a really popular small press magazine at the time. Uh, Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it was a really gradual process. You know, with the, the one year I might have had three stories accepted, the next I had eight. And then when I was 20, hmm, 27, I had my first novel accepted, which is a small press. And then it was, uh, it just went on from there, gradual building thing, year by year, got better and better. And I, I quit work, or I went work, went part time in work when I was um, about 32. And then I think I was 35 when I, quit work and started writing for a living. Uh, so, you know, you, there are, you do hear these overnight success stories where somebody writes a novel and it sells a million copies. But <laughs> me and most writers I know actually, you know, spent some time in the trenches and worked, worked their way up, really. Right. So what is your writing process when you're working on an original novel? Do you outline extensively or is it more of an organic process for you? Um, I'm sort of in between really. I, I don't, I'm actually doing that very thing right now. I'm, I'm toying with the new novel. So I've got sort of 10 or 11 pages of notes. Um, it's not really a, it's not a scene by scene or chapter by chapter proposal. It, it's just lots of random scattershot ideas. Um, I will pull that together into some sort of a more cohesive proposal. Uh, partly, partly cause my agent will want to see it. Um, uh, but I, I, I sort of, I think if you plan too much, you you plan the originality, and not the originality, but you 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 sort of write the story before you've written it. If you get my drift, if you plan, sure, you know, some people might write fifty page plans for their novel, but they pretty much told the novel there, and then uh, the rest of it is writing by numbers. I I, I enjoy um, discovering secrets about my novel when I'm writing it such as even getting towards the end. I tend to speed up my writing towards the end because I want to know what's going to happen because <laughs> I don't always know. I've usually got a rough idea, but I don't know. Um, you know, just occasionally, I don't even know who's going to survive till the end. Certainly something like, um, you know, something like Eden. You, you shouldn't, Eden's a bit Game of, Games of Thrones-ish. You should definitely not fall in love with any of the characters because <laughs> <laughs> there's pretty much guaranteed that if you do, you'll you'll be upset. Um yeah, so and you know, different novels demand a sort of different approach, but but generally, I'm I, I start off with a, a few page, few page idea, and and then plan more as I go along. So I'll write, I'll be planning two or three chapters ahead as I'm writing. That sounds good. And so, what what is your experience when you're working in an established universe with a media tie-in novel? I know you've written 
um, in Star Wars, Firefly, and and mm. lots of others. So, so what what's that process like for you? Uh, a bit more planning heavy generally because you're mm-hmm. working with so Star Wars, for instance, um, and the Alien stuff I wrote um, because you're working with a, a publisher's hired you to write those things. So they they need a proposal from you first of all that they can show the property owner. So um, uh, Alien, for instance, I, I wrote for Titan. They needed to show Fox my outlines before Fox could uh, give the you know give the thumbs up and say, yep, go ahead and write it. So the planning, more detailed planning in those instances, uh, which I don't mind, uh, and it, it generally works out okay. And the, the, the one that was most troublesome was for me as a writer was Firefly, I think. And that's uh, – I'm a f- big fan of Firefly, but I'm not um, – not as big a fan as some people are, <laughs> and I th- and I and I think uh, my publisher was very keen to make sure my novel w- was acceptable to the, the dedicated fans. So um, the planning process was okay with that. Actually, the editing process was a bit more difficult than usual. Um, not even difficult, just more intense than usual, I guess. Right. Um, if I'd been a, a rabid Firefly fan, it probably would have been easier. Um, I am, you know, I do love Firefly, but I'm, I don't go to conventions and things like that, you know. Right. <laughs> but uh, uh, you, you're often, and the, the diff, there's another difference with those projects. I mean, if I write a novel myself, I'm sort of primarily writing it for myself, like this new novel I'm, I'm thinking about now. But if you're writing a tie-in novel, you're writing it really for the fans. And that's that's just something I've only just sort of really thought of now. <laughs> you know, I was writing that Firefly novel for to entertain myself, but it was also for the the Firefly fans. So um, that that's a slight difference as well. So you, you've got to be more mindful of who you're writing for in those instances, I think. Sure. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Wow. What advice? Wow. That's, well, yeah, it could be hours of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, so I, I, I'd say uh, I still get rejections, you know, quite often now so don't be downheartened by rejection um in fact it's a learning it's a, a good rejection is a learning process um a bit like you know a bit like racing uh, racing a triathlon you learn more from one that goes wrong than from one that goes right a lot of the time so um so i'd say rejection is definitely it, it, it's they call it character building and it really is it, it's it's part of the process um write what you love um, even the tie-in stuff I've done, I've not said yes to any tie-in projects that didn't appeal to me and weren't properties that I thought I'd like or knew I loved. Like Alien, for instance, was an absolute labor of love. I, I'm a massive Alien fan. <laughs> I've always thought to myself, years for years and years, I'd love to write an Alien novel. And I even pitched one to Black Horse 10, 12 years ago, and it um, that that all fell through. But um and obviously Star Wars, labor, labor of love as well. So yeah, in your personal writing, just write, a, write what, uh, what, write the sort of books you'd want to read, I guess is, is great advice because you'll be passionate and excited about them then. Um, process wise, I mean, I, you know, I could go on and on and on, but, right. uh, the planning thing that we talked about is everyone's quite, everyone's got their own approach to that. I've, I've got a friend who's a very, she's a very, you know, very, very successful multi 
award-winning, successful, um, best-selling writer. And she, she plans to quite a large extent and knows her last sentence when she goes into the novel. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. Um, maybe that's why she's selling a lot more than me. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I should change my approach. Well, when you have an idea, do you know um, right away whether it's a short story or a novel? Yeah, I'm, I seem to be fairly good at sort of judging the length of a project. So I, I've um, I've written a couple of novellas recently, and I I, I know when I'm going into it um, that they're that they're going to be novellas. Um, when I was asked to write as a novella, so I I came up with an idea and thought, yeah, that's about the right length. And another project I just decided to write, I had this, this inkling of a story. And uh, I th- even before I went in, I thought this will be a novella and it, it came out that length. So, um, yeah, I tend to have a fairly good, fairly good idea. I mean, short stories I tend to launch into without much planning at all. I'll, I'll have a, a, sometimes a, a character or a place or an ending and just launch in and write it. Um, novels, you tend to understand that they're, you know what sort of length they're going to be because you've got just that you spend a little bit more time thinking about them, right? So well, yeah, and it's quite important to to you know some people try and write short stories. I mean, Stephen King's short stories are twenty five thousand words generally. They're novellas. He there's he writes very few short stories. I think um, <laughs> uh, not that that's a bad thing because his novellas are fantastic. True. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels and your new memoir? Yeah, sure. So I'm, um, my website's, uh, timlevin.net, uh, and I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram, but I'm still getting the hang of that to be honest. Um, but run, run, war crawl. I've actually self-published is my first it's an endurance event in itself, self-publishing. So <laughs> I've done that ex- that's exclusively through Amazon, but it's ebook and um, paperback. And I'm I'm very close to starting recording uh, the audiobook for that as well. I'll be doing that myself with a with the help from a friend who's a sound mixer. Luckily, so he's he's going to help me out. Uh, so yeah, so that that's available through Amazon. That's great. Well, what's the next race on your calendar? Uh, next one on my calendar is the Windsor Triathlon. It's it's quite a famous one in the UK. Um, I've wanted, wanted to do it for years. Luckily, my wife's wanted to visit Windsor for years, so that sort of tied in quite well. And then uh, just the weekend after that, I've got a half iron man called the Outlaw. And then my big race this year is is called the Brutal. Uh, <laughs> why I sign up for races called the Brutal. Uh, I've done it before, and it is absolutely brutal. But I... Um, uh, so it finishes with a run up and down Snowdon, which is the biggest mountain in Wales. Uh, and the time I did it, the weather was so terrible that they actually shut the mountain. So we had to, we did two more laps of the lake in the wind and rain. Um, so I've got unfinished business there. So <laughs> I'm back to the brutal this year. Yeah, yeah. You can read about that in run, run, walk, crawl as well. My first, um, my first attempt at that. Great. So, yeah. Again, we've been speaking with Tim Levin, horror and dark fantasy author and the author of a new memoir, Run, Walk, Crawl, Getting Fit in My 40s. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Tim, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks, Jeff. It was great. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. And now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of a novel co-written by Tim Levin and Christopher Golden titled Blood of the Four. 
published in 2018, Blood of the Floor by Tim Levin and Christopher Golden, performed by Christine Havam, published by Harper Audio and available wherever audiobooks are sold. In the darkness, Fila heard a laugh, a sigh, and then a groan of passion, and shadows came alive with a hint of possibilities. She might have been a princess bound by tradition and no longer a child, but Fila still had a desire for fun and a love of games that belied her age. Some of those games were played all across the island kingdom of Gwandis. They were passed down from parent to child, rules malleable and changing from one generation to the next. They were a rite of passage, a learning process, and the means by which a youngster was introduced to the politics of interaction and the art of conflict. But young Fila had also contrived her own games, whose rules also shifted over time. And each time, her activities found new aims and new purpose. They all led to the same outcomes, though. Manipulation of circumstance, the power of words, the molding of wills to her own desires. She often broke rules, but for a princess, such transgressions were generally overlooked. As time passed, she had abandoned most of her games, but one lingered, her interest never waning. Fila called it whispering. It was the gathering of secrets, the harvesting of hidden truths and forbidden knowledge. Whispering required stealth, agility, and determination, and the ability to hold on to the knowledge she collected until its true value became clear to her. It had begun as a child's game, but as an adult, she had come to recognize what whispering could gain her. She believed that one day her game would make her the most powerful royal ever. Fila's whispering took her through forgotten passages and into dark spaces no one else in the palace knew about or remembered. She found her way mostly by touch. Though she carried candles and flints, she rarely risked giving herself away. These places were hers, and she meant to keep them. Another sigh was followed by the steady creak of a wooden bed shifting beneath a couple making love. Fila felt nothing, no surprise, no sense of arousal, no shame that she was listening to her mother having sex. The queen's chambers were well-guarded and isolated deep in the heart of the vast royal palace. But Fila's whispering passages twisted around this heart like great vines. The blood they ran with was the knowledge of what she might discover. She edged forward, her hands pressed through webs, and they tore with soft, ripping sounds. Creatures scampered in the darkness, mostly away from her. A few came close, but they did not bother her. She was used to such things by now, and they seemed to know she too was a hunter and respected that. Fila sensed their calm observation, watching her with eyes that could see in the dark. She wondered what they saw. Not a girl any longer, not for some time. A woman who knows her own heart, someone determined to find her own way. Her life and future were regulated and dictated by the fact that she had been born into royalty. She did not begrudge that entirely, She quite enjoyed the wealth and privilege that came with her position. Yet from an early age, Fila chafed at the idea of strictures and 
had been committed to finding and forging her own path. Exploring these forgotten byways through and beneath the palace had made her feel that she was commencing this journey. There were tunnels and sewers, crawl spaces and voids left between one period of construction and the next, basement areas and hollows beneath great ancient foundations. She had found whole series of long-abandoned rooms known only to rats, wraiths, and other creatures of the dark. And now to her. This was her world, full of shadows and echoes, and it had become the only place where she truly felt free. She could exist here without question, shedding the protocols or traditions that might affect where she went next and when. She could lay her plans and construct her schemes. Someone cried out, a woman's voice, high and unguarded. The princess moved quickly, climbing a series of ancient wooden struts that took her up above the wide, arched ceiling of her mother's private chambers. Fila's feet were clad in thick stockings, and on her hands she wore soft leather gloves. The rest of her clothing was tight and smooth, with no buckles or belts to knock against wood or stone to give her away. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.